Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Well, I read a kind of alarming stat from a survey recently that said that Gen Z's number one aspiration an entire generation of Americans, <laughs> their number one aspiration was to become an influencer. Mm. Yeah, so if you don't know what an influencer is, an influencer promotes the sales of a specific product or a special event, usually through social media, with the goal of the more followers you have, the more you get paid. So getting paid to be famous is the number one goal of a whole generation. Uh, now, I want to say this. I don't think that the desire to be an influencer is a bad thing. I think wanting to make a difference, right? I mean, persuading people toward the truth or having an impact or even leaving a legacy or helping people thrive. And that, those are beautiful things that we can all relate to. We can all relate to those things. But when it turns from service to self-promotion or self-interest, it can actually be really damaging. I mean, it's undeniable that the cult of celebrity has permeated our culture today, but what's also true is that it's infected our churches. And it's not just pastors who are behind it. Uh, have a look at this quote from Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, his daughter, in their book, A Church Called Tove, and it's the Hebrew word for good. Celebrities don't form on their own. Behind every celebrity pastor is an adoring congregation that both loves and supports the celebrity atmosphere. The development of a celebrity culture also doesn't happen overnight. It begins when a pastor has a driving ambition for fame, but it can't take root unless the congregation supports that ambition. Mm. When being a leader or pastor has more to do with appearance or being admired or having a following, when the focus is more on status over substance, where does that inevitably, inevitably lead to? What have we seen in record measure throughout the church in America? The dramatic fall of yet another celebrity pastor gone viral. Stories of failure and abuse in the church. Pastors who were household names turning out to be the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. The issue wasn't their theology because many times it was very biblical. The issue was their lack of integrity. They forgot to practice what they preached and they were too busy maybe relying on themselves that they were no longer attached to the vine, which is Jesus himself. Let's just be honest, this is a sobering reality for all of us, and it leads us all to examine our own hearts. But it's also worth saying that though we are inundated with the clickbaiting news about pastors and leaders gone wrong, notice we hear nothing about the tens of thousands of men and women who serve and lead and love very well over the decades, many of whom are in this church. <laughs> those who have faithfully promoted the gospel over themselves. McKnight and Berenger go on to say, yes, the church is part of the good news, 
of Jesus. And the church should proclaim the good news of Jesus. But when men and women have only seen churches formed by unhealthy power, celebrity, competitiveness, secrecy, and self-promotion or self-protection, our corporate church life belies or undermines the truth of the gospel. So in a church who's, in a culture really, in a culture whose disillusionment of pastors and churches in general is pretty widespread and at times well earned, what does it look like to lead well? Well, we have been in a series called Live Free, and we've been studying the book of Galatians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote about 50 AD to some young new churches he had planted in the region of Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And today we're looking at chapter four, where Paul's tone changes dramatically. And we get to see a little more personal look at Paul and his heart for the Galatians. We also get to see a picture of the kind of leader Paul was to these churches. And though, and through Paul's example, really, in this passage, we're gonna see a beautiful picture of what gospel-centered influence should really look like. Let's go ahead and pray and just invite the Lord to be with us this morning. Well, Lord, we do. We just ask for your presence to come. And we just say, Lord, we need you. We don't need an idea of you, we need you. We need your presence, would you come? Would you soften our hearts this morning and enable us to to hear from you today? I pray that you would just open our eyes and ears through the power of your spirit and through your word in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, Well, well, the section we're looking at today, chapter four, verses eight through 20, is some of the most personal in the whole letter. And if you remember, Galatians chapter one through three, we have been more listening to, you know, Paul the apostle, Paul the theologian, Paul the defender of the gospel, but now we're hearing from Paul the pastor. And his emotion and his care for the Galatians is evident. This is a letter that he has written to people who he is invested in, who he cares for, and who he is deeply worried about. And it's not a sterile theological defense, it's vulnerable and it's personal. Now, as you remember from previous weeks, Paul preached a message of what? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these Galatian Gentiles turned to Christ by the scores, they were excited, they saw healings and miracles in their churches, and then Paul leaves. And following Paul's departure, these false teachers called Judaizers come into these churches and they start saying, you know what, Paul only gave you like half the message. (laughs) Yes, you know, you need to believe in Jesus. But in addition, if you really wanna be accepted by God and be one of his people, you need to obey all of the Mosaic law, right? And so Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians trying to persuade or influence these new believers to reject that false teachings, those false teachings and try to return to the gospel message that he had preached. And his approach in these verses give us insight into his heart and his intentions behind these words. 
And we'll see three things today that really informs our understanding of what gospel-centric influence should really look like today. So first we'll see Paul's primary concern, we'll see Paul's personal call, and we'll see Paul's pastoral care. And let's read in the first section by reading just verses eight through 11. Formerly, when you do, did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Well, Paul is continuing his thought from the beginning of chapter four on sonship versus slavery, but now with even more emotion and concern, he's actually afraid for them and he knows what's at stake here. And for him, it's not gaining a following or likes or even winning or losing an argument against the Judaizers, it's about his brothers and sisters gaining or losing freedom. That's what he cares about. Do we care about people's freedom? See, Paul's primary concern here, as in the whole of the letter, is the Galatians' freedom. He has poured significant energy and time and effort into teaching them about the freedom that they have in Christ as his sons and daughters. And now that he's not there, he's shocked how quickly they've turned back to those weak and miserable forces. Now, I don't think his concern here is that they are falling back into the idolatry that they came out of, right? The, the pagan worshiping of idols and gods. This is actually much worse. This is much worse. They are in danger of embracing a new kind of enslavement to the idol of works-based religion. And it's a sneakier one, isn't it? Paul is saying what's, what, that trying to earn your salvation through really just biblical legalism or morality or religion is just as much enslavement to idols as outright paganism. That's quite the statement. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor, at Westminster Chapel in England for about 50 years, he says the greatest enemy that confronts us in the church especially is the spiritual life, in the spiritual life, is the worshiping of idols. The greatest danger confronting all of us is not a matter of deeds or actions, but of idolatry. And what is idolatry? An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. God doesn't want anything to control you other than him. <laughs> but the danger here, what Paul is worried about is that the false idols of that biblical you know, legalism, what it produces aren't what we normally would think of as idols. So it's sneakier, right? We're, we're a little less aware it's things like church attendance. It's things like ministry to other people, serving, right? Lots of different, in lots of different ways. Um, Bible reading, you know, these are good things, really good things that we preach on, but those things don't save us. 
They don't make us worthy and acceptable and right before God. If anything, the idolatry and the slavery of religion is more dangerous than outright idolatry and the slavery of irreligion because it's less obvious. The irreligious person knows that he's far away from God, <laughs> but the religious person doesn't. And this is why Paul is in fear for the Galatians. They were taking on all these special days and months and seasons and years and observances. I mean, their lives were now riddled with lots of things to do and lots of things to make them feel religious, but they were, they were in slavery to these not gods. And it was so much worse because they wouldn't know that they were far away from the Father. They would think they would be, but they would actually be walking away from him. See, we must feel the full force of Paul's emphasis here on enslavement. If anything, Jesus says it is what, anything that's a requirement for our happiness or our worth, anything that we put our worth or value in, that thing becomes our master. Without the gospel, we will be under the slavery of some kind of idol. That's pretty shocking, but it is true. We are all idol-making factories because we are meant to be worshipers. We are, it's in our DNA. We are meant to be worshipers. We will worship something. Let me put it this way. Jesus, in his most famous story, the story of the prodigal son, told us of two sons. One was the younger son who spent his father's money and wild living, drank and consorted with prostitutes and basically just lived a life of complete and utter depravity. But the story is also about that second son, isn't it? And that older son who strictly did everything that his father wanted him to do as a matter of duty. Now the younger son could represent the pagan world, the Galatians before they came to Christ. And in that immoral place, they were alienated from God. And the older son could represent the Jewish religious orthodoxy of Jesus's day. And Jesus is making the point that they, that they are just as much alienated from God, the father, as the younger son was. And most religious people can actually be sometimes the furthest ones away from God. I mean, that's sobering. See, the younger brother embraced the gospel and was filled with joy because he got what he didn't deserve. But the older brother missed the gospel and was filled with anger because he didn't get what he thought he deserved. The gospel shows us that it is sometimes the moral, the religious, and the self-righteous who in the end are slaves. See, idolatry is not just about something in some other religion in some primitive tribe somewhere. Idolatry can be found in the heart of the church. And when in the church we rely on things like our prayers for our standing with God, or we rely on our church attendance, or our capacity to check off our Bible reading for the day, or a religious experience that we had a while ago, or the fact that we went to a Christian school, or grew up in a Christian home, or was involved in a certain ministry, if anything rests on our doing and what we do for God, rather than our salvation being on, what, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we are just as idolatrous as the worst pagans in the world. 
This is quite the statement. Whenever, whatever we worship, we will be enslaved by. And Paul aches for the Galatians' freedom. He wants them to see what they are in bondage to, and he wants them to be free. He wants them to live in the reality of how accepted and loved they already are in Christ, not in what they do or don't do. Do you know that your worth and your value is not based on what you do or don't do? It is based on what Jesus did for you and the fact that he said you are worth it, you are worth dying for. That's where our worth comes from, not in ourselves. Christ accepts us as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. Isn't that such a wonderful reality? He accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. And that leads us to our next section here. Paul longs for them to grow. In verses 12 through 15, he says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, then you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. (laughs) Again, Paul's appeal here is not doctrinal. It's not theological even. It's based on their own history together and the relationship they had with one another. It's a personal call. And here we get an inside look at how the church has started back then and what Paul was facing when he came to Galatia, he recounts how incredibly sick he was, how sick he was and how they cared for him. And we don't know what Paul was specifically sick with. Some people think it was maybe malaria, but the Galatians were caring for him day in and day out. I mean, think about it, even helping him go to the bathroom. I mean, this guy was sick. I mean, talk about up close and personal evangelism. I'm here to spread the word of the Lord. (laughs) And here you are, you know, sick as a dog. And, And really think about it. He made himself vulnerable, made himself completely vulnerable to these people. Not popular, but vulnerable. And it's out of that place that the church starts in Galatia. And he also recounts how he identified with them He didn't come in superiority like a Jew, as a Jew would, you know, these Gentiles down here, but he identified with them. He identified with them as Gentiles. He said, I became like you. And this is a very similar statement that he makes throughout his letters. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says the same thing. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. (laughs) Paul had become like the Galatians so that they could hear the gospel. He didn't sweat the small stuff, right? But he also didn't compromise on the gospel. 
And there's a big difference. Now, he was urging the Galatians to become like him and live the gospel. Now, Paul didn't believe he was perfect. If you remember later on, he even calls himself the chief of sinners. But Paul longed for them to become like him in his Christian faith and life. And in calling them to become like he is, what he's saying is, I'm not gonna leave you the way that you are. I want you to grow, I want you to change. Uh, but he doesn't leave them with the heavy burden of expectation and all these things to do like the Judaizers did. He says, actually, I'm going to show you how to do it by you just watching my life. I'm gonna do it myself, I'm gonna live it myself. And, and similar to Jesus, Paul is saying, I have come to embody the kind of life I want you to live. Do you remember? Do you remember how I was when I was with you? See, we've got a lot of people in this world who say, become like me, right? You know, and they're like, hurry up. You know, you have a lot of growing to do. Like, you know, and they're easy to, it's easy for them to judge you and to point out all your flaws, right? Become like me. Uh, but then there's also people that say, become like me, but then really they only show you the good parts of their life and they curate out all the bad stuff and you're like, wow, I'm never gonna get there, you know, if that's my standard. Or people say, you know what, I became like you, right? And they, they do the opposite and, and they actually get in the, the ditch with people and then they end up stumbling and tripping along with everybody else because they're not even living a life that you even wanna live. It's like, eh, you know, maybe live it first, then, <laughs> then I'll follow. Uh, but this is what Paul says. He says, become like me because I became like you. I mean, people have to be able to look into our hearts and our lives to really see how we're handling trouble, to see how we're dealing with disappointment, interruptions, suffering, like Paul, how we conduct our relationships, how we feel, how we act, so that they can see whether Christ is really real and how the gospel can really affect us in our day-to-day -day human life. See, generally we find that faith mainly comes through relationship with joyful, flawed, but honest, loving Christians. Not through arguments or information or even books. The reality here is that for every leader, every gospel influencer, is that the most essential part for us is to model it. The influential power of a leader comes down to their personal example and their model. To be able to, to in some way say to another person, do what I do, I mean, that is, that's hard stuff. I mean, think about it as parents, right? As parents, that's our lives. I mean, we want to influence our kids toward the Lord, but, but it's always, <laughs> It comes down to what we do, not what we say, right? Because <laughs> that's what our kids see. It's what they see day in and day out. You know, Monday morning, do we get up? Do we, do we spend time with the Lord? Do our kids see us open the Bible? Do they hear us on a Wednesday afternoon, stressed and anxious, praying out loud to God because we need Him? I mean, is it in our life? Do they see it in us? Do we model it to our kids? I mean, I remember this, this really impacted me as a young kid. I mean, this was, this was my dad in a lot of ways and my mom. But my dad, I remember he, he had a devotional chair. Anyone here have a devotional chair, right? Then it was a big oversized chair. And, and I saw him on that chair every single day, every day, reading his Bible, praying, reading Christian books. And it had a deep 
impact on me. Not once did he say to me, Heather, you need to have a devotional life. You need to have your own prayer life with Jesus. He didn't have to, because he lived it. And funny enough, he was here last night, so I got to share that story about him with him here. And I, I told him as he was sitting there last night, and, and I'm telling you, I, I just recently purchased my own devotional chair. I was so excited. <laughs> and it looks just like my dad's. I'm like, oh, I'm such my, my, uh, my father's daughter. But I, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited to have a place where my girls can watch me just meet with Jesus, right? Ruth Haley Barton, she wrote a fantastic book on leadership. If you've never read it, I highly recommend it. I love going through this book with people I'm mentoring. It's called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And she goes through the life of Moses. And here's something that she said in her book. She said, the market is glutted with books on leadership and many contain contradictory messages. I'm not sure anyone has the full perspective really. But one of the things I know for sure is that those who are looking to us for spiritual sustenance need us first and foremost to be spiritual seekers ourselves. They need us to keep searching for the bread of life that feeds our own souls so that we can guide them to places of sustenance for their own souls. Hmm. What people want most is a leader that's a model. And people really, I don't think they expect perfection, but they do want honest, authentic pursuits of the values that you profess. Parents and teachers, small group leaders, those that serve in our church, boy, this is intimidating at times, isn't it? And kind of convicting <laughs> to say to another person, in some small degree, imitate me, follow my example, do what I do. Boy, our lives, though, are really the most the most influential thing. That brings us to our last point here, because Paul can tell that their attitude toward him has changed. I mean, they used to be all ears. They were all about helping him and serving him, even in, in hard times. They were full of joy, but now the tables have turned, and now they see Paul as a hostile agent, and they're treating him as an adversary. Has this ever happened to you for speaking the truth in love? Mm. It's happening more and more nowadays. And as he's telling them the truth, their friendship has cooled <laughs> drastically. And we read this in the next section, 16 through 20. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. And that's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, but not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you right now and change my tone because I am perplexed by you. <laughs> I love this. This is great. Paul draws this interesting contrast here between the attitude of the Judaizers and their intentions with the Gentiles and, and his own attitude toward them. And, and he, and he takes the, talks about the false teacher's attitude first. He says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. See, the Judaizers, they had an agenda, right? And as Paul points out, it was not an honorable one. They had a self-focused zeal 
And the Greek word for eagerly seek here is used in a variety of ways, but it's more like launching an aggressive campaign to win your allegiance. That sounds familiar. <laughs> Or a better translation would be, they are flattering and making much of you so that you will flatter and make much of them. Mm. But unlike his opponents, Paul is not telling the Gentiles or the, the Gentile Galatians here what they would like to hear. He's telling them the truth. And he's been vilified for it. Paul would love to be able to be affirming and gentle, to be able to change his tone, but he would rather hold out the gospel and the good news rather than receive praise. Boy, that's hard. <laughs> The Judaizers' religious practices were really, they were designed to win the approval and the praise of other people rather than of God. Rather than directing people's attention to God, they were distracting people from God. And they were placing God with self through religion. And these false teachers wanted the Galatians to seek them, to seek them to be under their control and to be totally dependent on them And all too often, leaders in the church seem to be more interested in the exclusive personal attachment of their followers to themselves than their own people's spiritual growth or the unity of the entire body of Christ. Our passion, our goal as influencers, as advocates of the gospel should be to bring others closer to Christ not bring ourselves popularity, amen? By contrast, this is what Paul's goal was in verse 19. What does he say here? He says, he's in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. This is interesting language for a guy, uh, but I can attest to the fact there is nothing more intense and more painful than going through labor. Two 10-pound babies, naturally, I can say that proudly. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Uh, I can say that from personal experience, but this is a great illustration, if you think about it, of the investment, right? The investment of a pastor or leader or discipler, how they make that investment into the lives of those they're trying to lead and disciple. Children are not brought into this world without a lot of pain, a lot of pushing, a lot of effort. Isn't that true? <laughs> but it's also a wonderful, wonderful blessing. And I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements and lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Whew. Someone once said, nobody cares about how much you know until they know how much you care. And if you want to influence people to go in a certain direction, if you want them to hear the truth, they have to know and they have to see that you love them. They're willing to go the distance with them. 
I have had to say some really hard things in my day to people in my small group and friends that I know. Some of them have vilified me for speaking the truth, even in immense love. But then some of them actually heard me. They really heard me because they knew I really cared about them. It wasn't an agenda. It wasn't a desire to convince them to the truth and what's right. It's because I loved them and I wanted to see them free. See, gospel-centered influence is marked by loving truth and honesty. But funny enough, it's also marked by scripture. And this is our last little point here. We're not, be, we're not gonna actually go over this section today. Um, it's verses 21 through 31. It's the rest of chapter four. Uh, but it is a beautiful allegory, funny enough, about two mothers. And it's rooted deeply in the Old Testament and it reflects this really cool rabbinic style of teaching, which is both technical and allegorical. And I mean, it would take a whole sermon to really get into this. It's beautiful. I definitely encourage you to read it. And I think it's so compelling though that Paul the pastor here ends this way, that he ends his very personal appeal with scripture. When you're trying to move someone on the path that leads them toward Jesus, or even toward the gospel, at some point you are going to need to say, you know what, it's not just my view of things. This is not just my perspective on dating. It's not just my perspective on money or integrity or community. This is what God's word says. This is what God's word says. And I wish the use and the centrality of scripture wasn't up for debate in churches today, but it is. Do our leaders, do we care enough to speak the truth in love, to see people formed into Christ-likeness and to keep the scriptures central in our teachings? Mm. Well, in closing, I wanna invite the worship team to come on back up. And I wanna end with this. John Calvin, theologian from a long time ago, he wrote, if ministers wish to do any good, so any leader, any person that longs to have influence, let them labor to form Christ, not to form themselves in their hearers. It's beautiful. We need compassionate and courageous leaders who live what they preach now more than ever before. We need it. We need gospel influencers who model Christ's love to the world, who care deeply for their coworkers, for their neighbors, for their family members, to be agents of reconciliation and change and healing in the lives of people. If we are to do that, if we are to do that, we must lay hold of the good news of the gospel for ourselves. Living like sons and daughters who are truly accepted, who are connected to Christ. Not out of duty, like the older brother, but out of deep gratitude and love living what we preach and risking to love a world desperate for the good news of Jesus that is real and lived. That's what it looks like to be a gospel influencer. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.